Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Сколько бы он ни изображал из себя великого геополитика, великого какого-то такого мирового лидера, его обида главная в отношении меня теперь заключается в том, что, все, что в историю он войдет именно как отравитель. Вот знаете, был Александр Сабанин. Murder is the only way he knows how to fight. He'll go down in history as nothing but a poisoner. We all know Alexander the Liberator. Well, now we have Vladimir the Underpants Poisoner. That, of course, was Alexei Navalny this week after being sentenced to 32 months in prison, displaying the acerbic and laconic wit that has long been his trademark. And after the sentencing, thousands of Russians again took to the streets where they were met with a harsh crackdown by police and security services. Vladimir Putin's regime and Navalny's supporters are both upping the ante in what is shaping up to be a long and decisive showdown between the Kremlin and Russia's emerging civil society. So hold on to your hats. This promises to be a wild ride. Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from just down the road in Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. Welcome back to the podcast, Ilya. Hi, Brian. Always good to be here. Always good to have you. And also joining us from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital, Vilnius, a city which I dearly miss, if anybody hasn't gotten that message yet, is Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Welcome back, Kostya. Hello, Brian. Hello. So to get the ball rolling, I just wanted to get both of your top line reactions to this past week. The Navalny sentencing, what will surely go down in history as the underpants poisoner's speech, the street protests, the crackdown. Where are we and where are we going? Well, I think that in terms of Navalny's return to Russia, he really wrong-footed Vladimir Putin. Putin is not prepared to tolerate someone of equal measure and stature in his path in Russia, but that actually, to some extent, strengthens Navalny because he is now the real opposition. Gone are rumors of behind-the-scenes links to the Kremlin. Gone are a lot of other suspicions that now have no ground to exist. And also, it is clear that Navalny has managed to ride the wave about which I've been actually writing for the last three, four years. And this is the wave of change in the whole of the Russian society, induced to a large extent by the information revolution, by the fact that today, if you're in Vladivostok or in Pskov in the West or in the North or in the South of Russia, it doesn't really matter as long as you have the line as long as you have access to social media, 
you can talk about stuff, you can learn about stuff, you can debate stuff. And this is something what we've seen in the last two weekends when lots of protesters gathered from the east to the west of Russia to respond to Navalny's call to protest against corruption, against the regime of Vladimir Putin. And this is really extraordinary because it's not a disparate protest that we've seen in Russian provinces before when, say, in Vladivostok, you are you're protesting a, I don't know, a garbage dump and in Murmansk in the north, you're protesting an unjust decision by the governor. No, it is about what you could call federal type of or all Russian type of uh, political challenges now for Putin. And I think that this is really a very significant change. It doesn't mean you have revolution overnight or revolution around the corner. It right, will take right. quite some time. But I think Navalny managed to do something that lots of opposition figures before him in the last 20 years didn't manage to do. I want to stick with you for a moment, Kostya, because I want to pick up on something you said about gone are these rumors are behind the scenes ties with the Kremlin. And this is something, it's a very nuanced issue. I never thought Navalny was a Kremlin puppet. And that's not what I thought these rumors suggested. I think that what they suggested was that Navalny had support inside the elite. And I would actually argue that he probably still does have support inside the elite. And this is what is going to be deadly for the Kremlin when the street meets the elite. The way I used to kind of characterize it is when Alexei meets Alexei, kind of referring to <laughs> Alexei Navalny and Alexei Kudrin, right? To name the kind of iconic figure of the technocratic wing of the elite. But I wanted to, to react to that aspect, this kind of linkage, because this is when you see real political change in Russia, is when you have a split in the elite and part of the elite goes with the street. That's what we saw in 91. And along the same lines, how powerful is Navalny going to continue to be in prison? Because he's going to serve a real prison time this time. It's not going to be like 2013, I don't think. Yeah, I think he's going to serve real, not only real time, or a real long time. That's, yeah. that's important. Unless, and that's a different a different story and different di different topic, unless Vladimir Putin convinces him somehow to emigrate and right. uh, lets him out on humanitarian uh, grounds. Nothing, nothing way, his history suggests. Which I mean, suggests I don't, I don't, I don't think that Navalny will agree to that. Putin would like it. But sticking to your question, I don't want to tread on this semi-conspiracy theories. Uh, Not theory. conspiracy theory. I think it's natural that he has support inside the elite. In yeah, fact, look, I mean, I agree. I think that there are people that are looking at, at the situation, actually, in Russia and say, yeah, maybe <laughs> he's our good bet. Now, regarding your theory about Alexei meets Alexei, uh, that is interesting that you mentioned, because about six years ago, probably, I was talking to someone who was very, very prominent in the Putin circle, in, in the Putin elite, and has now gone sideways and slightly in the shadows and basically dissociated himself from politics. And this person, when I asked him what needs to happen for the Russian ruling clique to turn against Putin, and this person told me, you have to have the streets of Moscow really burning. They have to feel that facing off with Putin is less dangerous than facing the Moscow street. Mm. And we are still not there. Although I think, and I mentioned We're a little this, closer <laughs> in, in one of, of your podcasts before, although Putin is weakened, he's actually weakened by his response to COVID-19. 
Mm-hmm. I think his dissociation, his desire to push it on Prime Minister Mishustin, on the mayor of Moscow, on the governors, and to continue to be this sort of entity that levitates somewhere in the cloud, I don't think it worked well for him in the mid to long term. Mm-hmm. So to round up, I suppose that Navalny will be powerful in prison. I think that Navalny started to earn his Václav Havel, Lech, Lech Valencia spare. But I don't want to be too cynical. Putin has a lot of tools at his disposal to, first of all, dismantle the Navalny organization across Russia. That's what he wants to do in this year of the so-called elections to the so-called State Duma. And secondly, I'm afraid that if push comes to shove, he will not be afraid to eliminate Navalny because he gauges Western reactions. He looks at the head of EU diplomacy, Joseph Barrel, coming to Moscow just three days or four yeah. days after this violent crackdown on protesters, and peaceful protesters, really nonviolent protesters. And he thinks, yeah, okay, fine, I can manage that. I, I think Angela Merkel might have something to say about that, but that's something I do want to discuss, how important Angela the West reaction. nothing to say. Angela Merkel is total bloody zero. Let's bring Ilya into the discussion here. He's been sitting there pensively and patiently listening. Um, Ilya, what's your take on this? Where are we? How do you view this past week? Where are we and where are we going? Well, I agree with Konstantin that the stakes are now much higher. Uh, Navalny is on front pages of all global newspapers in all global news. He's definitely now a globally recognized figure and and Western governments react to this. They all, I mean, never before I actually heard all Western governments demanding his immediate release. Obviously it goes, uh, will they show anything other than, you know, demand and uh, grave concern? Will they actually go ahead with some sanctions? I actually don't think that Putin could resist United uh, West if only mm. EU and US would really put like directly link sanctions to Navalny's release. I think it will be just a matter of time before he is released. But the, so the only question is really, w- will the West show resolve? I'm still hopeful. I mean, there are some initiatives in um, US Senate, for example. If you heard just yesterday, I think, uh, or the day before yesterday, there was uh, a bipartisan proposal from uh, Senator Marco Rubio and, and some other two Republicans, four Democrats, you know, suggesting specific measures related to Navalny. Otherwise, I think we are in the long game. Obviously, Putin has a lot of things at his disposal to suppress opposition. We saw all this, as they're called in Russia, cosmonauts, all this really uh, dressed up uh, in hard armor and right. devices, uh, this... Uh, horrific armed police, which was not shy to use electric shocks against peaceful uh, protesters. Uh, I mean, some people joked, sadly, that Russia entered Belarus, that uh, Russia, you you know, united with Belarus in the sense that we are now having the same repressive, openly Mm -hmm. repressive regime on a huge scale. So I expect a long marathon. I think the question of Navalny's release is open, but the question of protest against Putin's regime is is a long story. It will be drop-drop strategy from Navalny's uh, mm. undermining uh, Putin's ratings. I think the uh, the whole strategy of smart voting will 
will only show limited results, but they want to take more and more people out on the streets. I mean, today, Leonid Volkov from Navalny's team announced that they want next protest to take place in spring and summer, and they will announce dates. But now they want to make them pretty regular, as I understand. I expect this to go for another five to 10 years. But at the same time, although all of this probably sounds gloomy, I think Putin's downfall in the next decade is almost inevitable. Because if you see at this uh, demographic, uh, he lost young people. I mean, the elder and middle, middle-aged people are still divided, and I would say still mostly conservative and supporting Putin reluctantly or in some way, but the time is not yeah. on his side. So in 10 years' time, this youth will be dominant, and it's, I think it's inevitable Putin will fall. Yeah, I mean, the 10-year time frame is a long time frame, and I've always kind of looked at this period we're entering into, into this kind of, I call it the crisis of late Putinism, this extended period of zastoy, of stagnation, right? But what's striking me right now is that both sides are upping the ante. There were things that the Kremlin wouldn't do to Navalny before. Remember their past restraint. After he was convicted in the Kirov last case in the summer of 2013, and thousands of people got on the streets of Moscow, they let him out the next day and let him have his moment at Yaroslavsky Vaksal, where he gave that speech in front of a huge crowd, right? You also saw restraint on the side of Navalny, though. If you remember in the aftermath of the Moscow mayor elections, right, when it looked like if the votes were counted fairly, Navalny probably would have forced a second round, which would have been a catastrophic result for the regime. And remember that speech he gave that night. There will be a time when I call on you to start lighting things on fire. I don't remember his exact words, but it was along those lines. He was calming down his crowd. He was, trust me, I know what I'm doing. This is not the time. That time may come and I will tell you. Well, now it seems that the Kremlin is upping the ante. They tried to kill him and now they're gonna give him a real prison sentence in a long prison sentence. And Navalny's upping the ante because his people are on the streets. So this, I'm wondering if this kind of upping of the ante on both sides is going to shorten the time frame. I'd like to kind of, starting with Ilya, get you both kind of react to this. Is like, how far is the Kremlin willing to go? Are they willing to kill him and eliminate him and absorb that cost? You addressed that earlier, question. How far is Navalny willing to go? How powerful is he from prison? How resilient is his organization, his foundation for battle against corruption, the FPK? How... How do you see this? Is is the time frame maybe being shortened because both sides are upping the stakes? I think, I mean, previously, Putin has always surprised us and been uh, more uh, unhinged than anyone could think. And he was the main trigger for sanctions. But even with unhinged Putin, I don't think he's ready to kill Navalny right away. I mean, that would be just, just inviting this united front from the West, which I think uh, even Putin doesn't want currently, maybe maybe later. But at the same time, he could isolate Navalny almost to a grotesque degree. But I, I strongly believe that Fabaka is a, is a pretty resilient organization. I mean, to completely remove them from social media, from YouTube, from various other outlets that they use, Putin would have to arrest and like uh, isolate uh, more than 200 people. 
And I mean, what I also saw the difference is I never, I mean, previously Russian protests were pretty brutal and pretty determined, but still there was this flavor of, you know, we're still a semi-democratic uh, country where we could just go out with balloons and uh, white ribbons and, you know, still negotiate our place to protest peacefully. Uh, now that's gone. And I see there was this movement of Narodniki, you know, this, mm-hmm. this really devoted uh, 19th century grassroots right. uh, protesters who would go to, to people and like ready to be victims, you know, ready to defend uh, their ideas at any cost. Frankly, that's what I see with Tabaka. I think Navalny has a team of several hundred, if not more, several thousand activists who are absolutely determined to do whatever is needed, mm-hmm. to risk their families, to risk their uh, livelihood, their, their jobs, their uh, income, anything. And I mean, that's a pretty powerful achievement for, for Navalny. And I don't think, I mean, uh, Putin would have to crush not just Navalny, but this whole team. Uh, and that would be so visible. And that would bring more and more supporters because in Russia, the whole, I mean, in any country, but in Russia specifically, victims which are suppressed so openly uh, and so brutally, they are—they always get more uh, support. So it's a long game, but I think the options are bad for Putin as, as they are not so good for Navalny. So I would not, uh, like, I would not bet that this uh, opposition would achieve much during these upcoming elections in September. I mean, with the smart voting, I mean, they will have more, pro- but they will still work on reducing Putin's uh, ratings and they will still attract more and more young people. And that's deadly. In the long term, that's deadly for Putin. Kostya, your thoughts? i got a few notes I've taken here that I'm thinking about, but I want to hear you weigh in on this issue now. I agree and disagree. With Ilya, I think that well, what I agree is that definitely it's not going to change. It's not going to happen tomorrow. I would say I would be quite reluctant to say that it's going to last for you know, 10 years. I think it's less. I do think that the crucial point will be 2024. Mm-hmm. I agree that there is a generational divide. And of course, there is something else I think which we also discussed once with you, Brian. Putin's problem is not that he's too old. I mean, he's, he's fit. Problem is that he's been around for more than 20 years now. Yeah. We'll just get tired of him. I mean, you can be St. Nicholas and people will still be tired, tired of you if he's around for <laughs> 20 plus years. Now, another thing that's important is that what can be done to the organization, to Navalny? I think what can be done with a certain application of force, Putin can dismantle the Navalny network in Russia, i.e. he can weaken his ability to impact elections. But what he can't stop is, of course, the investigative journalism and YouTube and stuff like that. That is not going to go away and that's going to irritate him. That's going to spur people into action. That's going to impact the minds. So there are here risks for Navalny's team, but also opportunities. Mm -hmm. With regard to the so-called elections to the so-called state Duma, I think that Putin is preparing for that. And I think that there are two things that he may be doing. First is actually reformatting the party landscape before the elections. It remained completely unnoticed, I think, in the West, because no one cares about all these right. puppet parties. 
But three parties, one with a kind of slightly socialist bend, another one which was called Patriots of Russia, and the third one created with Kremlin money by a veteran of uh, Russian invasion of Donbass and a famous Russian writer, Zakhar Prilepin, mm-hmm. have now merged. And Prilepin is playing, of course, for, for, <laughs> for a huge honorarium from the Kremlin. He's playing a role of Russian Mussolini, probably not yet Russian Hitler, but Russian Mussolini, calling to invade neighboring countries, uh, pushing Russian nationalism and things like that. Now, there are two things. First of all, of course, Putin is going to fuel this fire to spook off sitting middle classes with, you know, if it's not me, then it's these guys. Right. And secondly... He's played that card before. Yeah, he did, but it still is possible to play it. Uh, Number two, there are, I mean, look at the range of opinions about Navalny in sort of the intellectual circles in the West, including, by the way, left-wing circles. Mm -hmm. A lot of them see him as a kind of agent or world imperialism or whatever. Now, Putin is going to play this card and say, look, Navalny's people are saying vote for anyone who is not my party, who is not United Russia. Look, they are calling on people to vote for the bloody Nazis. And I think that that is going to be his attempt to trap Navalny and to decrease the impact of the so-called clever voting, which is Navalny's idea of voting for any party uh, united Russia. And number three, I think that forces that Navalny's return unleashed, we still may not know who all these forces are. By the way, coming back to your first question, there may be people inside the inner circle thinking, oh, by the way, probably... We should take things into our own hands before they completely sort of run afoul of us. Right. Run out of control. And I also think that there is a danger, small danger, that in the absence of Navalny, someone else may take this mantle yeah. of defender of the people and so on and so forth and play this role in a much more radical, let's divide the riches type yeah. of style. So I think that there are multiple challenges. And I also think that there's one thing that I would like to insist on. I'm sure that Putin is not scared by the West. Putin will only be scared by the West. If the West, collective West, doesn't matter whether it's the EU, which is horribly weak, or the United States, which is consumed by its domestic affairs now and by its face off with China. But if the collective West shows, first of all, that it's ready to really go for personal sanctions against a wide range of Russian figures that are really transacting stuff in the West. Not I suspect we could be moving in that direction. He's not traveling anywhere. Not Sergei Kiryanko, deputy head of Putin's administration, who will not travel to Paris and he's not going to, I mean, if there is, his, if he has a yacht, it's not registered in his name. That's number one. And number two, Maybe some significant sanctions, like you know, switching off SWIFT. That is something that the Kremlin will feel, will will feel bitterly. It will bite. But yet another interdiction against yet another unnamed deputy head of FSB. Why Putin should care about? It? What about the names on Navalny's list? I think that's important. I think I we could be. I, th- I, I wouldn't be surprised if we headed in that direction. Uh, I, I think you would be surprised if you I are would not. not. I would not be surprised if we headed in that direction. Look, that will have an impact also because that will show 
that, of course, it will be challenged. Navalny's words Navalny matter to the West. And Usmanov, and they will say we have this and that, and we have, uh, maybe they have foreign passports or whatever. But I think that it will be important because then the West will show that it takes Navalny as seriously as Putin. Because mm. his word will be taken as a word of advice to the West, right. and this advice will be followed. Well, so I yeah. think that, that will have significant political and symbolic value. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that in this respect, Navalny plays his game very well. I mean, he's upping that. Look, he knows he's going, he, he risks death. He risks his life. Mm -hmm. He's put yeah. it on the line. But I also think that is uh, one observation I, I would like to uh, mention. I think Putin doesn't have 10 years with Navalny <laughs> because in 10 years, even the socialist Norwegian Nobel Prize Committee will award the Nobel Prize. I'm very critical about the Nobel Prize, uh, as you might have mentioned. <laughs> okay. uh, so I think that Putin doesn't want that. He doesn't want an Andrei Sakharov on his hand. So I think that what we'll see, he will, and that I really feel bad about making this prediction, but it's either offing Navalny, well, basically, let us say the fate of Mr. Hashogji kind of illustrates what the consequences are if you are important. And Saudi Arabia is not even nu a nuclear power. And another thing, which I'm also very sad to mention, but Putin has a lot of possibilities on, let's say, working on Mr. Navalny's health. Yeah. And then creating a situation in which the chest of Germany or the president of France or the vice president of the United States or whoever will ask for Navalny to be sent for medical treatment to the West. And then Putin will keep, let's say, his brother Oleg and his family as hostages inside in order for Navalny not to return. And I think that we've seen how he manipulated yeah. Mikhail Khodorkovsky, not Mikhail manipulated, but how he called yeah. Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Well, I was going to bring up the contrast with uh, that. It's, and it's, it's, it's I can only say that Khodorkovsky, I think he, he I, I just can't imagine the kind of choice he had to make, but he he's a good son. And that was important. Yeah. I think that Navalny may be, I'm not saying that, I'm not predicting how he'll react, but he may be forced to face such choice. I'm going to bring in Ilya. I just wanted to make a couple of points. The stuff which circulating around in the West right now, there's some very interesting legislation popping around on the Hill. Um, Ilya, you may be aware of it, kind of global anti-kleptocracy initiatives that are popping around on the Hill. We're going to talk about those in next week's podcast on this as it relates to this topic. But also, I, I wanted to, uh, Ilya, I know you got a lot to say. I just want to throw a few more things into the soup uh, before, before you do. I mean, you have... Something is emerging right now, which is kind of Navalny the symbol versus Navalny the man. This is something that's really important that's happening right now. It's a trend I've noticed even among people who are not politically sympathetic to Navalny, who have reservations about his nationalism who are not particularly Navalny supporters, right? But yet what Navalny now symbolizes is bigger than Navalny and his politics. He's been turned into a martyr, Ilya, as you noted, Russians love martyrs, right? The other thing is, Kostya, you brought up the contrast with Hodorkovsky, and what, what Putin would love is for Navalny to turn into Hodorkovsky. He goes to prison and everybody pretty much forgets about him. I don't think that's going to happen. 
right now because Navalny's a lot harder to vilify than Hodorkovsky was. Just wanted to throw that into the soup. Ilya, I know you got a lot to say, so have at it. Well, actually, I wanted to say only one main thing. It's not now, speaking of Navalny's movement, I don't think it's enough now to put into eliminate just Navalny. He has to eliminate Lubov Sobol, Leonid Volkov, Vladimir Milov, maybe several other characters. So although Navalny has charisma and it's still sort of a Russian type of movement where the leader is visible, it is a movement. It's not a one-man party. If you remove just one one man, it, it's done. No. Actually, Fabaka showed that its organization is resilient while, while Navalny was in coma. Mm-hmm. They were functioning and they were producing stuff and they mm-hmm. had leaders and they you know, made headlines. So I don't think for Putin, it's a good strategy just, you know, to to kill or to deal with Navalny's health. And then it's the question is resolved. No, it's actually, it's going to increase popularity of people around Navalny. And uh, they will have a substitute leader. I, I strongly believe in that. Secondly, you're absolutely right. People came out on streets, not just exclusively in support of Navalny. Many people went out on the street because they clearly understood that This is now about basic right to go out on the street to protest. This is about journalists. This is uh, about all these uh, crazy prohibitive laws which were enacted by this uh, so-called crazy printer, Russian State Duma, just before New Year Mm -hmm. on foreign agents, on uh, all sorts of uh, propaganda, on uh, getting arrested and imprisoned for really minor minor protests or or like uh, posts, blogging. So yes, for many people on the streets, uh, this is no longer about Navalny. And many people openly say, I don't really support him, but I absolutely detest the way he was treated. If he can be treated like this, then anyone can be treated like this. So that's why, I I mean, in a way, many people are, are correct to say that Russia is now like Belarus or even worse. And speaking of actions from the West, Yes, there are many initiatives, but the ultimate ball is with the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. I know they are updating their Russia policy. Mm-hmm. They brought really good professionals. They mm-hmm. have a good team on National Security Council and new Mr. Blinken on uh, with the State Department. They're all knowledgeable about Russia. I really hope they will be leading, and I think they, if they lead, then EU will join them. The ground in the EU is now much more fertile for mm-hmm. sanctions. Yeah, I do expect this administration to show resolve. I truly do. Before we shift to the second half, I wanted to throw one thing out there. We've been talking about how far the regime will and can and might go with Navalny and with Efteka and all of this. But what about, and Ilya, you raised it, the street. How tough are they going to get on the streets? Is this regime prepared if faced with massive street protests, as Kostya said, the streets of Moscow burning, right? Are they prepared to go all Tiananmen on the Russian street? Are they prepared to use lethal force? And what kind of a result would that produce? Remember what happened in Ukraine in 2013. Ukrainian authorities almost never used force prior to that against street protests. Ukraine has this long post-Soviet tradition of street protests that were tolerated by the authorities. And then in at the end of 2013, Yanukovych got lethal. I mean, with the snipers. And that didn't scare 
the Ukrainian protesters. It, in fact, brought more, exponentially more people on the streets. How far do you think the Russian authorities will go and how do you think the Russian street responds? I want to get you both on that before we move on. I would say I I see a completely direct correlation. If the crowd is more than 150,000 or better, 200,000 people, no, they don't use brutal force as much. They might pick out someone from the crowd, but they they actually behave much better. I would say they would only act against a a big crowd if it really became violent and sort of try to, to set up a Maidan. But unfortunately, I don't expect this from... Moscow or St. Petersburg crowds, not yet. I think there is a huge qualitative distinction. In Kiev, it was an anti-imperialist, nationalistic movement, not just anti-corruption movement. So uh, it was against Putin as much as against uh, Yanukovych. It was anti-imperial. In Moscow, it is more about, you know, anti-corruption and dignity, and but still not anti-imperialist. I mean, some mm-hmm. human rights activists uh, say until the Russian crowd becomes anti-imperialist itself, then nothing yeah. will change. That's um, an interesting point, actually, because that would bring in support from other former Soviet republics. It would actually, because the Ukrainians... With good reason, are a little suspicious of Navalny. Looking at my social media feeds, anytime I post something on Navalny on my social media feeds, my Ukrainian friends point out, you know, his views on Ukraine and Crimea. So, I mean, if you're right, if this movement also becomes anti-imperial, we've talked on this podcast in the past about the kind of links between the Russian protesters and the Belarusian protesters. But if you can get the Ukrainians on your side too, um, again, I still I see all of this as like the last stage of the breakup of the Soviet Union. It's continuing the work that started in the late 80s and early 90s. If I may add one last point, Putin, I don't think he's actually that ready to use violence as many people think. I mean, he he would use it against a small crowd or relatively small crowd, or he would use it unless they like go against the Kremlin literally, physically, and like mm-hmm. try to take over some government structures or set up Maidan. You should understand one basic thing. There is one other thing that Putin is afraid of other than Navalny or street protests. It's his own Siloviki. It's his yep. own GB mafia circle. He doesn't want to depend on them more than they depend on him. <laughs> the Dvorcovi Pirivirot is his yes. biggest fear, actually. <laughs> the, day, the day he turns all of this into bloodbath, he, he gives up all legitimacy and he depends on them much more than they depend on him. That's right. Yeah. They can throw him under the bus. He understands that very well. It's a mafia circle where he's still the boss of bosses. And he still sort of controls it through collective gang, uh, you know, uh, responsibility as the Krugavaya Paruka. But the day he has to rely on their physical force and nothing else, they will throw him under the bus. This was the idea behind creating the Rosgvardia under under Viktor Zolotov. The whole idea of this was not to control the streets, in my opinion. It was to control the elite with a Praetorian guard that answered only to Putin. Kostya, before we move in, let's bring in you on this. How far will the street go? How far will the Kremlin go in suppressing the street? Well, look, I'm the only one of these podcasts to have been physically on the biggest demonstration in the modern history of Russia in January 1991, in defense of Lithuania, actually, speaking mm-hmm. about. That's right. Through. That's right. So there were, according to different estimates, 400 to half a million people. Yep. I was there as a child as well. Ilya was there, but he was there. And I think that 
I watch uh, it on CNN. It's, it's a game. It's a game of numbers. In case you have three hundred thousand Moscovites, I don't think you use force because then basically force will be eliminated and flattened out on the asphalt. What I think Putin's desire to punish those protesters that came out on the streets in the last few days and two weeks is a desire to stave off a much more massive demonstration. I don't think it's going to succeed eventually when conditions are ripe, people will come out. So I do think that Putin may try, and speaking about nationalism, I think that there is, I'd like to share a story. Actually, I was fired from Commerçant FM station. My program was closed after a live interview with Navalny. Uh, that was during a time when he was running for as a regional deputy in, in one of central Russian regions in 2015. And when I asked him about his experience and his nationwide ambition, he said live on the air, he said, look, I may be not very experienced, but what can be worse than a war criminal who ignited a war in Central Europe and shut down a civilian airliner? Actually, because of this phrase going live, I was fired in the program. So what I want to say is that he evidently recognizes Putin does. His entourage, though, is playing it in a very, I've talked to quite a few of them, is playing it a completely different way. We don't care about Ukraine. We don't care about Nord Stream 2 because we don't care what Ukraine gets or doesn't get from it. There is, uh, people are saying, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, that they are trying to enlarge, to spread out, to increase their base. And to take in those that are basically nationalistic and think that the Crimea is Russian and so on and so forth. Question is, when is the time to reveal your colors, your true colors? And I think that in this respect, I don't have that much hope that there's going to be an anti-imperialist mm. uh, movement mm. when, when push comes to shove. Nor, nor do I, because basically Russia's ideology is, was, and always has been imperial. Yes, yeah. I think that uh, yeah. later, if you take... If you take power, if you take the Kremlin, first we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. Uh, <laughs> if you do it, and then if you wrap this idea of honorable peace with Ukraine in the wrapping, into the wrapping paper of national interest, then you may be able to do it. Maybe. I don't think that Navalny wants to be under Western sanctions for the Crimea. No, no, he doesn't. And the West doesn't want to have to sanction him. Yeah, the Crimea. exactly. <laughs> so I think, I think that... We have to wait for now yeah. but, and give Navalny's supporters the benefit of the doubt. As for the coup d'etat, for the Pirivarot, Dvartsovi Pirivarot, well, you know what? You can't be late for that. I actually think that Putin missed his boat, missed his bus to ride to the glorious sunset of Perestroika 2 or Khrushchev Spring 2. In 2011-2012, yes, yes, during the protests in Moscow, which yes. were very mild, which were very good-natured, and, and where people just wanted basically to, to, to be given a bit more of a voice in the affairs of Russia. I think that, as they joke in Russia, you know, this train has sailed. Yes. So, you know, it's not an option anymore. You want a coup d'etat, I think you'd rather speed up, because I do think that in a few years that won't work. Kostya, I'm glad you mentioned the 2011, 2012, because that's where I do want to go, because I think there's a lot of interesting comparisons in contrast to draw. Well, 1991, I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah, 91 as well. In a, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how this round of unrest in Russia compares 
to periods of sustained protest in the past. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from just down the road in Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. And joining us from across the Atlantic and Lithuania's awesome and wonderful capital, Vilnius, is Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And of course, you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. In many ways, it seems we've been here before. It seems we were here in late 2011 and early 2012 during the Polotna-Ploshit protests that came in the wake of the Putin-Medvedev castling, the contested state Duma election, and Putin's third inauguration. That was the time when Navalny actually emerged as a national opposition figure. And it seems we were here in the summer and fall of 2013, when the Kremlin last tried to put Navalny in prison, only to release him following mass protests in Moscow. And it seems we were here in early 2014, when Ukraine's successful Euromaidan revolution seemed to briefly inspire the Russian opposition, and the possibility of contagion seemed very real. But in each case, the Kremlin appeared to be back on his heels, only to roar back and crush any dissent. Kostya, why should we believe that this time is any different? I think there is some reason to believe that. First of all, Putin's been around for a long time. And in 2014, he presented the ultimate prize, the Crimea, on a golden platter to the Russian people. And that prolonged his stay in power for several years. But the Crimean effect is now gone. That is not to say that Russians want to give back the Crimea, but basically they're no longer grateful to Putin. And you only have to read Alexander Pushkin's eternally significant Boris Godunov play to know and to learn that our population's really grateful forever. And I think that now you have a different situation. First of all, Putin's been around for, for longer now, it's 20 plus years, and people are starting really to get tired of him. He's getting old, he's getting inflexible, he repeats the same tricks all the time. The crowd around him does not get any more diverse in the sense of new faces and new ideas. The economic situation is not good. Just to remind you, I've spoken to you know, a couple of Western investment bank analysts recently, and they're all saying that in the coming years, it is impossible for Russia to get back, not only to the level of household income that was there in 2008, the year of peak oil prices and 
Russian prosperity before the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. But even to 2013, which only barely managed to scrape part of the way uh, to 2008. So this economic misery and gradual ossification of this state capitalism also plays a role. Albeit in the long run, if you export oil, gas, diamonds, and gold and arms, you always have some cash to distribute to the peasantry in case of an uprising. You have less but, than an era of low oil prices, though. That's for Yeah, sure. but, but there is another thing. I think that Putin may well try to distract domestic public uh, citizens of Russia from economic wars and consequences of COVID-19 and things like that by maybe pulling yet another rabbit from the hat and, let us say, annexing the, the Moscow-controlled parts of Donbass. I does, that have any, does that have any resonance? It will have any resonance. It's not going to have a resonance of a Crimea. Not even close. <laughs> being the savior of Russians still plays quite significantly to the feelings of certain parts, Putin's power base. And I also think he will wrong-foot the opposition, because then he'll make the opposition either side with him or say we're against them and say, well, this is an anti-Russian opposition. We always told you they are Russophobe. In terms of consequences from the West that he may suffer, I think he's convinced. I'm not saying that he will not suffer consequences. What I'm saying is that I think he's personally convinced that nothing will come, nothing too serious will happen to him because I think he's convinced that no one's too interested in Ukraine, that Ukraine is a semi-failed state and that most Western capitals see it like that, and that a few more sanctions will not, uh, a spoonful of sugar, you know. Is, Just to be clear, we do not believe that Ukraine is a failed state. Putin is trying to convince people that it is, just for my, yeah, yeah, well, my Ukrainian well, listeners are going to flame me for that. Ukraine is not a failed state, but Putin is trying to create it isn't. It. What I'm saying is that he is, I think, convinced that Ukraine is a failed state. And I think- He's convinced that, himself, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is that there is this whole industry, especially in Western business circles, of explaining what is not to Putin's benefit. Oh, Putin is not going to invade Georgia because it's not to his benefit because he wants to keep control over Tbilisi. Oh, crash, boom, bang, it happens. It's impossible for Putin to invade Ukraine. It turned out to be possible. Yeah. I mean, lots of things turned out to be possible. So I think that Putin may well be thinking that he can pull this trick off and basically enhance his domestic legacy, distract public opinion for some time. And actually, it will not cost him that much because to some extent, Donbass, or the occupied part of Donbass, is pretty much self-sustained. Most, most of these people already work in Russia. A lot of them have Russian passports. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that for the first time, very publicly, a bunch of Russian propagandists, including Margarita Simonyan, the boss of RT, former mm -hmm. Russian today, landed at some kind of obscure conference in Donetsk in, in, in the middle of Donbass and were very public about their presence there. And she went there and she made a speech saying, please, Mother Russia, take these people back into your fold. I don't doubt that they might try to do it. What I doubt and I'm skeptical about is the efficacy of that, of, of how effective that is going to be on Russian public opinion. Oh, yeah. Look, I, do, I don't think it will be very effective. And I think there's going to be a lot of people trying to convince Putin that it's not effective. But 
let us go back to those explainers of what is beneficial for Putin. Yeah. Putin may think completely differently. Yeah. No, you're right. Ilya, I want to get you in here. Why should we believe this time is any different than the past when the Kremlin appeared on its heels appeared to be losing popular support and came roaring back. Do we have any reason to believe this time is any different? This time is different in two respects. Putin's anti-rating is rising Mm -hmm. visibly. It hasn't been like this ever before. I mean, his rating was not so good in 2012, in 2011, 2012, but still, I think even the numbers that we see from the pressured Levada Center even semi-official numbers, I would call them that, they, yeah. they, or his rating is, is falling. And secondly, as I said, finally, there's this whole generation born in around 1990, plus minus. People in their 20s, 30s, they lived only under Putin. They absolutely fed up with him. And they are on the rise, inevitably. It's a generational thing. They will feel more influential positions in life. They will there will be more of them. There is political learning in this movement. So while I think it will take another five to 10 years, overall, I think the process is inevitable. It's just a question, will this linger for until 2024 or yet to 2030? Yeah, I go back and forth as to whether we are on the kind of uh, this path to a protracted period of stagnation or if we are we are moving into a 1991 type situation in either case i think what i again believe what we are witnessing is the latest if not last stage in the process that began with the breakup of the USSR back in 1991. So I'm going to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today, unfortunately, but this is to be continued. I'm sure you'll both be coming back in the not too distant future. So that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from just down the road from me in Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation, and joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital, Vilnius, a place I really, 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 really want to visit soon in case anybody hasn't gotten the message, has been Konstantin Egert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle. Thank you both for a lively and enlightening discussion. Discussion. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, which make us all sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And please leave us a rating and review while you do so. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week when we will look at pending legislation that could affect U.S.-Russian relations. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.